welcome to Scuttlebutt Podcast. I'm Rich Mellon, and tonight we have a very special guest, Joe Lozinski. And Joe has uh, is uh, both a trapper and has a remarkable background to share with us. Now he's got a, a new pastime that we'll talk about towards the end here. Joe, how are you this evening? Great, Rich. It's uh, it's it's an honor to be on here. Oh, <laughs> people say that, say that to me. And I'm always struck by it. It's so funny because we're just trappers. I'm a trapper. You're a trapper. Big deal. Right? <laughs> uh, well, part of the reason I say that is uh, if I can be on the same program as guys like Alan Purdy, um, that's an honor. You know, that's uh, um, I got into listening to your podcasts uh, when I do the leather work for the sheets for the knives that I make. You got to listen to something, so I started listening <laughs> to your to your yeah. Well, you got you want to listen to something, but you have to look at what it is that you're doing. So, so it's the ideal. Uh, it was the ideal thing. Isn't and, it funny though that so many people now they they listen to podcasts when they're they call it lost time, and uh, that's their commute to work and that kind of stuff. In some places, it's several hours. You know, each way is hmm. this lost time, and doesn't that say a lot about today's media where they would prefer to listen to you and me talk than, than to listen to what's going on on, on a radio, you know? <laughs> well, absolutely. I, I think, I think people just want uh, something that's real, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what, whatever it is that you're into, as long as it's something real, as opposed to something that someone has made up. I think too, I think people want to identify mm -hmm. and Sandy and I are just, common boring regular everyday old people and I, I mean that's like our super our secret weapon right because right. we don't you know we wear shoes and, and shirts and, <laughs> and mm. stuff like that and so people can't really brand us as being some lunatic or whatever and, mm. and that works to be works in our advantage let's talk though let's start this right out from the beginning um mm. where are you at and where, where 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 were you born where did you start trapping and when did you start trapping I was, uh, I'm in Regina, Saskatchewan, and I've lived in Regina since I was about 16 when I moved off the farm. Um, I was born actually, uh, in the far north in a, in a bush camp where my dad was working, uh, near Flin Flon, Manitoba. So that's where what my birth certificate says. But then I grew up on a farm, um, out near Ituna, kind of halfway between Ituna and Belcaris. Yeah, I actually know where Ituna is, and I've I've ate the um, Chinese uh, smorg there. <laughs> <laughs> and that is also, uh, you know, uh, when I would deal with, you know, people, uh, different people that were not from Saskatchewan, they're like, why, why is that? I said, that is a standard. That is a hallmark of Saskatchewan. And what a lot of people don't realize, I'm kind of into historical things, that was also the mark of whether you were a town or a village. Because really? if you were, yes, yes, the the places that were a little bit bigger always had the Chinese cafe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and now that because that was kind of a a sign that you had made it as a town. Um, and and yeah, I mean, if you look back at historically, you know, like even the writer W. O. Mitchell mentions in Who Has Seen the Wind uh, about the Chinese cafe. I always find it so funny because 
the sign always says Chinese and Western or Chinese and Canadian food, you know? That's that's the <laughs> iconic in Canada, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, part part of part of what they're trying to say, Rich, because my common law nan is Chinese and the Chinese food <laughs> that 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 they feed to us in the malls and, and that kind of thing. Oh, I know. That's not real I, Chinese food. So that's <laughs> Yeah, I know. I we we have uh, one of our sponsors. His his wife is is Chinese, and, and she, uh, like right now with the with the coronavirus and that, I mean her, her people are there, and and so it's it's a very tense time for them. But we have had some meals with them, and mm. yeah, you'd never recognize it. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's not the same stuff. Like like yeah, there there's no traditional Chinese chicken balls okay that's that's no. not a, that's not a thing <laughs> or deep fried battered shrimp right <laughs> yes yeah no yeah that, that's yet another thing that uh that is not trad- real traditional chinese cuisine what did your dad do in the bush camp uh my dad was was an iron worker and um uh, so he just followed the work uh all over the place um and then um when my grandfather died, his dying wish was that we would move out to the farm. Um, and so the land was divvied up. But my dad, as one of the youngest uh, kids, only got 80 acres, which even then was really not much of a farm. Um, so we always hunted and trapped and uh, um but my family was very into into hunting and trapping from the time they immigrated. So you you come from a big family? Uh, no, uh, there's only myself um, and my two sisters. But we lived right next to uh, my dad's brothers and sisters. So I had six uncles and two aunts, and all of my uncles had you know all they always hunted and trapped and. Uh, and it was kind of interesting growing up, um, you know, I would learn to trap different animals kind of for each, uh, you know, from, from each different people, my dad, my uncles. But what was fascinating that I didn't really think about, Rich, until, you know, how we've had some major climate changes in the last, say, 10 years or so. Right. Um, what was interesting is that um, there were like my oldest uncles um, knew very little about trapping muskrats because there were none when they were young. Uh, by the time there was enough water to support muskrats, well, they were more actively farming, um, you know, and then um, but one of my oldest uncles, his thing was weasels. He was the king of weasels because in the 1930s, a weasel brought 10 or $12. Isn't that something? Yeah. Wow. And then and then later on when when the the wet years in the 1950s <clears throat> came around my dad and one of the other brothers were hardcore into muskrats because they were of the age that they were, you know, teenagers and old enough to really get get to it and 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 trap but weren't necessarily really actively farming yet either. So, how did they trap muskrat back then? Like what was their techniques? Oh, it was it was it was really very much uh, pretty similar to what we 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 do now, um, except the the conibear wasn't around. 
So right. you, they they would uh, set you know set foothold traps in uh, in push-ups, you know, on a, on a drowning rig. Um, and I learned uh, I learned to set uh, uh, traps on feed beds uh, in the spring. You know, stake to a uh, a stick to drown them. Uh, we would uh, dig out uh, bank runs, uh, put a foothold in there later on when bear traps, you know, came around. I mean, they were around when I was a little kid, uh, but they were fairly expensive. And it was also a little bit too much uh, for me at eight, nine years old when I started to set one of those. Although I think when I was 10, I got one for Christmas, but I would have to get my mom or dad to help set it for me. And then I would carry it all the way, <laughs> like a mile. Yeah, yeah, a mile, yeah, without, without setting it off. To, to God bless right your parents. To, to God bless right your parents. The, yeah, they, drop they, it right they, into the rat run. Yeah, they they would hand a set a set trap to you that you couldn't set. Let yeah. you go walking a mile away and not worry about it. If you got caught, I guess you'd come back a lot faster. You know, <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, and and that's uh, and I think it was just an excellent thing, uh, you know, for me. And uh, yeah. What, what I think it really the world that we ended up, you know, we don't have kids that get traps for Christmas anymore. You know, no, um, <laughs> you know, once once I once I started trapping, uh, Rich, and uh, uh, do you want me to tell you how I really got hooked as soon as I started you trapping? Bet. Okay, I do. well, as a kid, as a kid, as every young boy, do you you're familiar with the the movie A Christmas Story? You know where little Ralphie wants a Red Rider BB yeah. gun. Yep. <laughs> well, as a, as a as a kid, I saw my cousins that had BB guns, and of course, I wanted a BB gun. And my mom and dad said no because most BB guns are not strong enough to really kill anything. And then you'll do foolish and irresponsible things like your cousins do sometimes, shooting at each other with them. When you're old <laughs> enough, you'll get a twenty-two, and then you'll learn to respect. Okay. All right. Good. So this is what I'm told at age six and I'm waiting to get a 22, but it wasn't coming. Well, uh, I think the spring in the spring of the year that I turned eight or nine, I can't remember exactly. Um, my one uncle, my uncle John, um, he, his favorite was spring muskrat trapping. Um, you know, footholding on the on the feed beds and and in the runs and whatnot. So he showed me how to do that, Rich. And I had, uh, you don't know, you know what? I had I got a numbers a little number zero trap for Christmas. So I had one number zero, and then I, had, I think I had two other rusty old gopher gopher traps. Number <laughs> number one victim. So I had three traps, and I went out, um, and I would uh, I would you know, ride my bike to, you know, to down the dirt roads to the closer sloughs. And, and anyway, I trapped 12 muskrats, learned how to put them up. And so sent them off to the auctions. And um, uh, I made $40, uh, <laughs> roughly five bucks a piece, 12 rats, and $40. And I bought myself a 22 single shot. Rich, I was the king of the world, man. I was hooked. I was hooked, man. You know, 
Yeah. I can guarantee yeah. it. How many, how many kids of our generation learned about commerce trapping? Uh, that, I think quite, a, I think quite a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you, there was something you could go do this work and you would get money for it. Right. And then you yes. could buy something. And I mean, it was, it was pretty simple. And we often laugh because when, when uh, we were selling a lot of weasels and that, they become, I started calling them pizza money. And, uh, oh, okay. you know, cause every year, you know, you, one year they'd be worth five bucks each or whatever. So it would take, you know, three, three weasels for, for a pizza. Right. Okay. And, and, uh, you know, and then one year they, they dipped down to, to three bucks. And so now we were up to six weasels for a pizza. And I was telling Sandy, you know, not to go hard on, on the pizza money and that kind of stuff. And, and, it, but it, it's funny that, I mean, that was, that was real. That was real back then. I mean, we, oh, yeah. My, oh, my yeah. brother and I did the same thing when it came to muskrats. We yep. could leave school and then we could, uh, 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 go over to now is just practically in downtown Grand Prairie, but then there was there was sloughs and there was ponds and, and there was push ups mm -hmm. and that we'd go around in our skates and uh, after school and and trap muskrats, you know what I mean through the uh, through the push ups. Well, I think it's a tremendous learning thing too because one of the first things that I learned when my dad said, "Okay, well, you know, you can you know you can get into this and." You know, your uncles will help you learn anyway. But we we took um, our first batch of muskrats in the fall to a fur buyer and got two, three bucks a piece. And we're like, ooh. And then I so then I realized, OK, well, that's the way it works. If you want cash right now. Right. Then, you, the, the, yeah, this guy, you know, the buyer's got to make money. Um, and at the time, the alternative where there was still the Saskatchewan Fur Marketing Board. Well, you sent your pelts off to auction, got top dollar, but you had to wait. Yep. So yep. that's. But it's no different though, to, to today with people getting, you know, the, selling the, their tax return. Like, I mean, yep. I, I couldn't believe that, you know, that went against everything that I that, that we learned to, from our days in the trap line. But to, to give up 15% just so you could have it today rather than wait a month or so. Well, the other thing that. <laughs> it's a fascinating concept. Yeah. The other thing that that trapping taught us so much was that hard work was was uh, rewarded, but that you had responsibility. You know, if you set that trap, absolutely. you had to go check it. You know, yeah, you, you had to check it and make sure that that if you had a rat in it, well, that that you reset the trap so you could catch another one and nothing ate your rat. Then absolutely. when you got it home, it had it had to be taken care of you know you had to skin right, it you exactly. had to stretch it exactly you know right exactly and it didn't matter how cold it was how late it was and as we nope. know in the winter time checking traps after school it gets dark dark pretty quick oh damn and, yeah. uh yeah and um i remember my dad saying specifically look if you're gonna do this we can't come looking for you all the time because we won't we won't we won't always know exactly where you are so you've got to practice um yeah any and because my dad knew how it goes on the trap line you know you're you're just oh just make one more set or oh yep. just look you know <laughs> and it's getting dark it's getting dark okay you finish your set you look up it's dark yep you know but he told me like listen pay attention you know when you're not um actively making a set or pulling a rat out of a house pay attention and realize that if you close your eyes and listen, you can hear the highway two miles away. That's west, you know. So 
if you can go basically at a right angle from there and head north, that you know you might that will come to the yard. Otherwise, as well too, depending on where you were, um, we had two sections of land altogether. Although my dad only had a small piece, um, there's yard lights, you know, and 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 you know the different yard lights they might be miles away uh, at a neighbor's place, but if you realize where those yard lights are. When suddenly it's dark and you're kind of turned around, well, you just kind of find yourself a hill and you go, ah, okay, I know where I am. What it was teaching you was to think your way through something. It was teaching Absolutely. you the ability to reason and, and what common sense meant, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, and you're absolutely right with, you know, you've got to, uh, uh, you've got to be responsible. You, you've got to check those traps. Uh, otherwise, your animals get get eaten, and or or you know in in warmer weather rot. Or and, and the other thing I think too as well is it teaches you, believe it or not, and perhaps the listeners, if the listeners are trappers, they'll realize this, but other people might not realize. It also teaches you a strong set of morals, because yeah. there's an awful lot of what you're doing out there. Nobody's going to know, you know. Nobody's Absolutely. really going to know. Uh, if you didn't bother, you know, uh, to go check that trap or, or whatever, but you know, you know, and, 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 and it, yeah. That, that's all it takes. I, um, I, I think, I, I think Mark Twain said it. I think this is his quote. If not, I always give Mark Twain credit anyway, cause he's a bright guy, but he says integrity is doing the right thing. Even when nobody's watching. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's I I don't know many trappers that don't have that integrity. You you have that responsibility, and it just comes with the territory, right? Right, right. Because because hunting, uh, I mean, almost all trappers are also hunters, but hunting is a little bit more of a recreation. Um, you can kind of limit, you know, your exposure to the bad elements, and and uh, but trapping is more work, you know. It's yeah. another form of hunting, but there's, there's a lot more work to it. Absolutely more work. So you started with muskrats. What, mm -hmm. was, what was next up? Oh, next? Uh, now, fortunately, uh, my dad and my uncles had prepared me that at times you might catch a mink uh, in a muskrat set, um, especially if you're trapping uh, the tunnels. And, you know, we had a number of spots. The water was quite high in the early 70s. So a lot of your little old back roads, which weren't really roads or road allowances, would be partly flooded. Um, and uh, my dad and my uncles told me how, showed me how to find the runs by just walking along the hard dirt and, and stomping. And sometimes you could, you could see the run going out in the water. And anyway, you'd dig in there with a spade and set a leg hold trap uh, in the, in the tunnel once you break into it. So uh, by the, by now after I, after I had my 22 single shot, as uh, far as I was concerned, I was a full fledged trapper and this was my living. <laughs> I was hardcore into it. You know, over the course of the summer, I'd done odd jobs and whatnot and acquired myself another dozen traps or so. And man, I was right into it. So, and I, I was kind of prepared for, I, I don't remember how I really knew, but I, I think I kind of knew that my dad and my uncles had told me when you catch a mink uh, and you're going to your sets, you'll smell them before you see them. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I can kind of smell this skunk. 
and I get close and I can see the chain jerking and he's gone down and, and it's and it's on this old road like a two track road allowance um and the mink's down the hole so I I pull the 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 sod plug off this and I pull him out by the chain and of course he's snapping away trying to bite me and so I know I need to kill him um but without damaging the pelt and and of course you know I had seen my dad and my uncles uh you know just choke the animal you know really quickly so I'm trying to do that but I'm just a little kid <laughs> and I'm not strong <laughs> enough I'm not strong enough yeah so I'm trying to I'm trying to and then he said you know give him a tap on the nose well so I'm trying to give him a ta- tap on the nose with a stick and I managed to stun him a little bit and so finally I get the mink on his back and this piece of stick you know, wedged against his throat and he's kind of getting quieter. And I'm like, okay, okay, this is, this is working. This is working. <laughs> and then, and, and then I hear that there's a vehicle coming up and a vehicle rolls up and stops. And I look up and I see it's my great uncle Leo, um, uh, my dad, my grandfather's brother. And he was the hardcore trapper of that generation, the first generation of Lozinski's. So he comes over and he's all excited. Oh, I heard you were trapping. That's good. You're going to be the next one. And he, I said, what? You can't kill him. Here, I, I could help you. I'm like, but here's the thing. Uncle Leo at that time was on his third set of uh, hip replacements because he kept wearing them out. Oh, my so goodness. We walk with two, yeah, so we walk with two canes. So, so he comes over and, and, and he says, and he goes, okay, okay, we'll put him out good. Here, you hold his head to the bumper of the truck and I'll give him a whack with this pitchfork handle. Okay. <laughs> well, but Uncle Leo can't really stand that well. So he kind of pulls this hay fork out of the back of the truck, kind of puts down his cane, leans against the truck, and I'm holding this, this mink's head on the bumper. And Uncle Leo lets lets loose, whack, and he wallops me right across the hands. <laughs> so I let I drop the mink. I let go of the mink, but he's still got the trap on his foot. And the mink falls and runs under the truck. And I'm I'm like, Uncle, he's getting away. He goes, Get him, get him. So I crawl underneath the truck and I grab onto the mink, who's he's not doing real well. But I grab onto the mink, and then I try to get up. Or to like, you know, like come right up onto my hands and knees. And suddenly it's like my plastic 1970s parka catches fire to the muffler. And I'm like, uncle, I'm on fire. Pull me out. Okay, okay. Grabs me by the feet. (laughs) Pulls me out. (laughs) Uh, And then then, uh, we actually, we, we, we gassed him. We gassed him against the uh, the uh, the exhaust on the uh, on the tailpipe of the truck, and he went out right like you know right like that, and uh, and and you know and and plus my uncle was you know had stronger hands and but oh oh uh, Rich I was stoked I got forty dollars for that mink isn't that amazing forty dollars for a nine year old kid in nineteen seventies. 576 oh i i got another two or three mink that winter probably 30 40 rats um a few weasels i had more cash money on hand than my parents did yeah oh yeah yeah Um, that is so cool yeah and 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 so of course so what i really wanted to do 
is I wanted to go further north to be like a full-time trapper, you know, like uh, like the guys like Alan Purdy and, and other people did. And, and uh, But fortunately or unfortunately, we didn't know anyone further that trapped in the provincial forest. Um, we just were under the standing it was very hard or, or almost impossible to get into because the lines were owned by someone and we didn't really know how that worked and, and no one I knew did know. So, um, so yeah, um, so that's what I did is, is, um, is basically muskrats, uh, mink, weasels, um, but then again, it, it, it uh, trapping teaches you about adaptation because by the time I was 12, 13, we were losing our water. Uh, the climate right. was changing. And by the time I was a teenager, the muskrats were gone uh, because there wasn't the water. Um, and so then I turned to, turned to foxes and coyotes. You know, okay. And, and, and what, how did you target them? Um, well, that was, that was also a big learning curve because, uh, it was very hard to get good information then. And many of the books or things that you could order or look up, um, were not current, um, because I'll tell you, um, and I remember telling Don Gordon this because when I got into trapping again in the, oh, probably 07, 08 or whatever, and I was telling talking about you know because uh, i i got some newer traps and i was telling them you know the difficulty of uh that the the fox and coyotes are very trap shy out there and he's like he's stunned and, and i see he goes have people always trapped out there i said oh big time big time you know so um i started uh trapping them you know, trying to basically taking a, an animal carcass, putting traps around it, and then realizing that sometimes that will work. Um, and then I got a copy of, I believe it was Fur, Fish, and Game, and learned about dirt holes. Um, and yeah, that, realized, yeah. That, that's so fascinating. I mean, we grew up walking across the prairie or whatever, and, and you know, in the this time of the year, a little bit of sun would come along, and, and it would, it would mm -hmm. knock the, the snow off of a horse turd. And the coyotes yep. would walk halfway across that that field to go pee on that horse tree, and we never oh, think yeah. about it. You'd never no, think about no. it, and then, then all of a sudden, when, when you when you see your first uh, description and, and diagram of, of a dirt hole set, it is the, it could be a horse tree set here. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and then uh, and, and you know, and then I learned, and, and so then I even adapted that, and. Uh, um, me and my me and my me and my dad came up with a set that we called the buried muskrat set or the buried chicken set um and the 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 weird hook on this is you had to have very fresh bait um either a chicken that had just died or a fresh muskrat that you just something that hadn't previously been frozen and then basically at the edge of a summer fallow field you know with the um with the you know the the turf or some bush as your backing um you took an axe, chopped up the dirt, got a uh, got it all you know crumbly and and whatnot. Uh, spiked down uh, two traps in the bottom of your hole. Uh, put your chicken or your muskrat on its back and cover the thing up completely so that just the feet are sticking out. Just the feet are sticking out. Um, 
bed your two traps on either side, sprinkle a little urine over the whole thing. Uh, and uh, Rich, probably in, oh, probably 2007, 2008, when I was doing a bit of footholding, that still worked if you had a fresh-caught muskrat. So why fresh? I I can only assume it has a, trem- a much more uh, odor for them. Uh, I think they can they can smell that. The other thing I think as well is that um, even though they know the trap is there, it's worth the risk. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was yeah it was uh, it was. Uh, but, and and what we also part of the whole thing of of the buried set with only the feet sticking up is not catching birds because right, yeah. mag, magpies come along your set's ruined you know so uh well not only that but i mean we don't want to kill them i mean it's uh yeah it's a magpie well, no, it's, or, it's a or whatever it's a waste yeah you it's, could, it's you a could waste. legally shoot them you know in, in alberta anyway we can i i just don't i don't care to to, to do it with a trap right and and no i know it's it's pointless birds... it ruins your set and kills the animal for no gainful purpose that's right. And when, when the bird is in yeah. the trap, well, you, you're not catching a martin or a coyote or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I understand, yeah, so- though, that you took your harder knowledge of trapping as uh, in your use in that and applied it to a career. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I I realized, um, you know, as, as I think I mentioned to you earlier that as a as a real small kid, I, I was very, uh, I had horrible asthma and allergies and whatnot. Um, but getting involved in trapping got me out walking and, 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 and I actually got stronger and stronger. By the time I was in high school, I was a distance runner. Um, and then I'm like, and then I realized as well too, you know, like the stronger you are, the more you can do. Um, and I started lifting weights. And, uh, then when I moved to the city, I did whatever slave labor I could get. And in the winter, I'd go back out to the farm and trap. But, you know, I like people. I always wanted to work with people. So then I went into, for at first, security, and then later on into law enforcement as an investigator for the federal government. And um, once I got, you know, a lot, uh, you know, into more in-depth cases, um, my final dozen years or so, I was an inland immigration enforcement officer for CBSA and and the main job was uh, locating, identifying, and capturing fugitives that were already inside Canada. And uh, I developed a program that I called Footprints uh, because I would tell people, you know, I'm a trapper, and catching bad guys is the same as trapping. You have to understand the habits and the personal things that you're that you're quarry does uh and then use that to catch them <laughs> i like that <laughs> yeah, so it's were, it's were the, these people who were in canada illegally or they they had yes, applied yes. Or, or their their no, no, visas no, had no, run no, out they, or uh all of the above all of the above um and then um it, it's not that difficult yeah they either came into canada uh legally and then stayed forever, um, or they snuck in. I mean, it's a, any of the above. It's it's not. The, I mean, as time goes on, it's 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 more and more difficult uh, to get into Canada. But I mean, there were there were a number of different fugitives that I apprehended that had been living, uh, especially in small towns, um, for decades. 
And really? Yeah, yeah. And eventually, eventually, yeah, I, I ended up doing a lot of uh, touring and speaking engagements uh, with the RCMP um, because, uh, I mean, I can't tell you, you know, um, all of the people that I uh, um, that I identified, but uh, a lot of times the person would be there in plain sight for years and people would go, you know, something's just not quite right here. Um, and lo and behold, it's a guy, fugitive hiding out from wherever. Um, in, in this part of the country, more commonly uh, from the U.S. Um, okay. Why? Be why? Because it's somewhat easier to get here and it's somewhat easier to hide. You know, if you're Caucasian in appearance and if you don't speak with a really thick accent, you know, don't get into trouble and you can kind of go unnoticed for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're pretty easy to get along with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but there was also eventually, you know, after I identified one of my first major uh, cases, I realized, you know what, there's a certain way that these folks will always live and act um that's consistent um really they yes absolutely absolutely um it's just like it's just like trapping other other creatures it's just as you were saying with canines you know the canines you know will go way out of their way um because they've got to stop and pee on that rock or stop and pee on that stick the person that is a fugitive will live in a certain way that a lot of times makes life a lot harder for themselves but they know full well they don't want to work in certain jobs or live in certain areas or do some of the things that everybody else does because that's going to bring them to to attention well you know i mean as i as you grow up you know there's always a story about uh, that the feds were hiding this this wise guy from new york city in in dawson creek or whatever that kind of thing my thoughts always were was what worst place could you have to put somebody like that you know they they would stick out like a sore thumb like why wouldn't you shove them in in, in like edmonton where there's a million people they, they'd be a lot easier to disappear than, than in some little community or or i got that all backwards uh well it all it all depends it all depends i i had some involvement or knowledge with rcmp witness protection program too and yes you have to put somebody in or, or you should put somebody in a place where um, they won't necessarily be noticed, but by the same token, uh, you know, witness relocation is 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 a completely different animal. Um, partly because um, a lot of the times the witness that you're relocating, they're no saint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the reason that they know things to testify about is because they're no saint themselves. So you've got to try to put them somewhere where they will not pose a risk to other people and where they will not be right beside certain temptations. Thus, it ends up sometimes becoming, you know, small towns or other out of the way places. Um, and, and again, you know, um, but it is it is surprising as well, too. Um, sometimes when I catch up to these folks, there would be locals that knew full well um, that this person was was a fugitive, um, but didn't feel like 
turning them in. It didn't, you know, and a lot of times they wouldn't necessarily know the, the full story. Um, and that's, that's just the way it goes as well too. Uh, rural, rural or small town people, they're much more of a tendency to mind their own business. Um, right. they're not, they're not the type of person that thinks, yeah, the greatest thing would be to snitch somebody out. You know, they, Hey, you leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. And, yeah, this this guy this guy is a little bit strange, but he's the hired man on such and such a farm, and it doesn't concern me. <laughs> so you ended up um, designing uh, and um, blueprinting the uh, the ultimate dirt hole set for catching criminals or for catching uh, border jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, kind of. Although, although to a certain extent, Rich, a lot of times as well too, they would they would catch themselves. They would catch themselves, um, but you know, with my system footprints that we, myself and the RCMP, we would we would talk to other agencies um, and government, and because a lot of times these folks are, how can I word it? They you you'll come across the the, the fugitives that are that are hiding in plain sight, but people don't necessarily know what to do or who to call. Or whether they should do anything, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, uh, I, I even to this day, even though I'm retired now, occasionally I'll be talking to somebody, even occasionally law enforcement, to go, oh yeah, well, yeah, but he or she is married to a Canadian, so it's all right. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, that does nothing. <laughs> that does nothing. <laughs> that's that's yeah. That's that's like. Um, that's like having never, that's like, uh, taking the very basic trappers course. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the very yeah. basic start of your process towards Canadian citizenship or permanent resident status, but in of itself, it does nothing, but it's just like everything else, rich people. It is astounding what people will believe because they see it on TV. Yeah. Oh, so true. And, you know, people talk about statute limitations and all these other things. And most of these are American terms that have zero oh, application in Canada. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, and, and there were a number of American fugitives that I arrested that said, um, oh, yeah, well, uh, I take the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know what? That that doesn't work here in Canada. And uh, you can try it in immigration court if you want, but it, it won't go well. And some of them would do it and they would immediately be cited for contempt and and, uh, you know, and now had even more problems. But yeah, yeah got, people. Uh, yeah, I got, I got another number for you. You're going to take the fifth. I got another number, the, the 49th, as in parallel. You're north of it. It doesn't count. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 uh, it, it's it's different. It's different. Pe people, it, it's astounding, Rich, how much people will uh, you know put together the things that they see in TV and media and run with that as the truth. You know, just like you know some of the nary, uh, negative stereotypes of uh, about trapping and. Occasionally, I'll be talking to somebody that I don't know well, and they're like, "What are you doing in your retirement?" So I said, "Well, I'm trapping." And they're like, "Really? Is that still allowed?" Oh, well, yeah, you know, that's the saddest thing you ever hear. I because we, I mean, you have no idea the the amount of uh, of 
correspondence we do every day, it mm-hmm. seems. When, you know, if, if, if I got cell phone coverage, I've got emails and texts and, and mm-hmm. you name it. And the saddest thing ever is people, you know, well, we learned about it when we were in, in, in uh, kindergarten and that in grade three, but I didn't know it was still legal. Like, I mean, that is so sad. How, how do mm-hmm. we lose mm-hmm. that so fast? You know, I mean, uh, is- I, I don't. I, I I don't know, Rich. It's it's uh, it. Well, here's a fascinating thing because of my my trap spring knives, and I'm, I'm very into you know the mountain men and that type of thing. And I used to hold a number of different law enforcement certifications that were from the United States, and I would drive down through Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and there's a place called uh, the Three Corners or Four Corners the most beautiful places on earth. But what's fascinating is all of the different mountain man festivals, which are quite often connected to trappers conferences and whatnot. And, and we, we, I mean, we, obviously we have our trappers conventions, whatnot, but there's no, there's no recognition of that era of, uh, of uh, history and the fact and, and, and the role that trapping played in it. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was different. So let's talk about your knives. Well, how, you know, how did you get into that? I, I mean, as a kid, uh, I'm of course I'm have this fetish about sharp things and, and I'm, yep. I can remember that I had an, an old friend. Um, he was, gosh, he was 80 when I was 12 and he taught me how to reload a, uh, a rifle ammunition, but he also, okay made himself a knife and he made it out of an old saw blade. I think it was a planer, a big, big old planer blade off of a, uh, of a a sawmill. But anyway, I, of course, after I seen that and, you know, Don, Don was a pretty important guy in my life. And so when I went home, my, my, my father was a a carpenter and and there was an old skill saw blade on the, on the wall. Well, saw blade, saw blade, right. And, uh, I could I could see that there was a there was a knife a dang nice knife that was trapped inside that saw blade. And I did my best to try and get it out of there, but it's still trapped there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, somewhere along the line, you picked up the bug and wanted to start making knives. Right. Well, it's uh, it started when you remember when uh, muskrat prices were really high. Um, and one of my old buddies that I grew up with, um, said, uh, Hey, uh, we're going out to the farm. Uh, we're going out, uh, shooting muskrats. And, uh, I said, uh, really? Why? He goes, you know, they're 10 bucks a piece now. I'm like, yeah. get out of town. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So I look, I'm like, holy cow. Anyway. So I was about 2007 or so. Uh, and I, and I started trapping again. And that was also the years where we had an awful lot of water. So, of course, I had a ton of traps out at the farm, and then, you know, being cheap, I required a lot of, uh, I, I obtained a lot of other used traps, you know, a lot of small footholds for drowning rigs, etc. cetera. Um, anyway, so um, I had a lot of old traps that, you know, the spring was shot, and um, in, the, uh, in the winter of 2014, I had my first shoulder surgery. And couldn't really do much. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to, uh, well, actually what it was, I went to Dan Beaver, had to look at new traps. And I said, oh, kind of price. He goes, well, he goes, we do sell replacement springs, you know. And I'm like, well, that sounds like an idea. So I buy these replacement springs. 
So then as I'm sitting around, my shoulder's healing, can't really do too much. I was like, well, you know what? I'll pop these new springs onto the old traps, you know. And I remember literally thinking, oh, there's, I had half a dozen to do. And I'm like, okay, well, something that I want to watch is going to be on TV in half an hour. It'll, it'll take me less than that. Oh, think again. <laughs> think again. Um, and, and so I, ha- I had myself a little rotary file that fit on the end of a drill. And I discovered that, yeah, if you need to do some some filing to make these new springs fit on these old traps, you can do that. Uh, you can, you know, you can you can grind down the jaws a little bit on the trap, but but the spring is a completely different animal. Um, and so then, you know, you know, when I got a couple of them fitted, I'm like, okay, the fit isn't that great. Well, it would just need to be set a few times. So being a typical guy, you know, on how something isn't, you know, working quite right, well, you just force it. <laughs> well, I dis- I I discover with brand new powerful springs, it, it when it doesn't really fit quite right, it'll fold that uh, the uh, the jaw over like a banana. Um, <laughs> yeah, so at that point, I realized that wow, spring steel is a completely different deal. Uh, but anyway, so I completed that and you know tossed the springs away. I thought, you know, I should make something out of those. And then in my different reading about, you know, your old-time mountain men, I come across something that, uh, an article, and I've seen this a couple of times. Well, when those guys were out, um, you know, in, in the early, you know, from the 1600s all the way into the, you know, 1800s, you had your muzzle-loading rifle, you had one or two store-bought knives, you know, probably a big Bowie, maybe a second one, maybe a clasp knife. But if you got swamped in the rapids or bushwhacked or whatever, or for some reason you lost those knives, there was nowhere to buy another one. No, no. And what what tempered steel did you have access to? You had to sacrifice one of your trap springs, and the guys would uh, make a uh, uh, trap spring knife, and there's... uh, very famous mountaineer and guide by the name of Ben Lilly in the States that was famous for his trap spring knives, uh, mainly because he gar- he he uh, guided famous people like uh, Roosevelt, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, uh, cool. And, yeah. Anyway, so, so I decide one day, you know what, I'm going to try doing this. So I make myself a knife and it turns out, eh, okay. And uh, then hunting season, my buddy sees it. He goes, where'd you get that? I said, I made it. He said, oh, make me one. Okay. So I made him one. And then another buddy wanted one. And then it became friends of friends. And I'm like, okay, if if it's friends of friends, um, I got to get, I got to get some money for this. Uh, And then I also learned, you know, how to work the steel better. You know, my first couple of knives uh, were not heat treated because I didn't have a forge. So I had to build one, which is still the one I use today. Um, and then just, just kind of went with it. Um, that's how I got started. Well, I mean, and because once again, I have this fetish about sharp things. (laughs) I, uh, I understand the importance of the treating, the heat treating. I mean, that, that's, that's everything about oh, knives yeah, today. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. there are many exotic blends and of, of, uh, you know, chromium and vadnium and nickel and, mm-hmm. and, uh, steel and, 
stainless steel and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes down to whether that blade is any good or not, is the heat treating, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, the trap spring, now the first trap spring knife I made, I didn't heat treat it. And part of the blade was okay. But, you know, in order to, in order to straighten that spring out and make it flat, you know, you've got to apply a fair amount of heat with a torch to the one part of it. And that, of course, takes some of the, the temper and hardness out of the blade. Right. Um, so then, you know, once you've got your, got your blade shape, uh, made, you need to, uh, heat treat it, which I learned partly off forged in fire and, uh, partly from different buddies and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and then there's not only, there's not only the, the, uh, the heat treat, there's also tempering or annealing by which you have to take some of that hardness away uh, because otherwise the uh, blade is brittle as cookies. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, the, and that's one of the wonders of, of the internet is, is how many different things you can find out there. And I have a, a number of different people that, that I follow that, that build knives and they just, it's just cool mm -hmm. to me because once again, then mm -hmm. I'm this little, this little boy, that 12 year old boy that, that sees this knife blade in this, uh, in this saw blade <laughs> and mm -hmm. I never did mm -hmm. get it out. It's one of the very few things that I, I, I haven't accomplished that I, that I once started, uh, out and, and never got finished mm -hmm. with your, do you have uh, a lot of different designs or do you build to, uh, you know, to a person's uh, personal requests or, do you have well, a favorite? Um, what, uh, well, the, the trap spring knives and um, and once I started selling them, and, and part of the reason that I uh, that I do this is because um, where I sell a lot of my knives are at the trappers' conventions and rendezvous, right. and this pays for me to be there because I have learned so much uh, in going to these different things. Um, oh yeah. I mean, after you know, the first winter that I was retired, um, and I, you know, had more time to go to the different conventions, um, by the next year I was doubling my take of coyotes. Why? Learning from other people and selling the knives gives me, you know, uh, a purpose to be there and, and pay for the trip kind of thing. Um, but as far as what I make it, it, uh, you kind of have to work according to your material. Um, my uh, and, and as well too, uh, my my spouse Nan, who's the brains of the operation, she says, "Listen, you're doing very poor marketing here. You, you need to have you need to have different lines. You know, like okay, well, all right. So so there's these big knives, the you know, and and the big hunting knives. Um, those are made out of a number three. Or better yet, a number four wolf trap with the really big, strong springs. Anyway, so my big hunting knives, I call the number four wolfer line. Um, and that's big enough, heavy enough steel to make a large hunting knife. If you want, you know, a skinner, a smaller hunting knife, maybe four inch or so, um, one and a half or number two springs, uh, will do for that. Um, but I also tell people that um, trap springs are just like people. <laughs> you can put all the you can put all the heat you want to them, and some of them will not straighten out. They'll just break. So when they break, then what I'll do then is uh, I use those to make really small pelters. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's you know, like that's one of the one of the 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 recent additions to the the knife lines that I've I've really enjoyed is a small pelter and and you'll wear it actually around your neck on a on a cord. The uh, oh yeah yeah the the uh, the scabber itself. Um, yep. usually made out of a molded plastic that's very, very solid. That's what's on the cord. And, and you, you just pull, you just pull, mm. pull the, the knife, uh, out of it, pull it straight down and, and out of it and, and the way you work with it. And then when you're done, you shove it back into the, you know, and it, and it rides around your neck. Kind of a neat thing. Cause lots of times, you know, trying to get that pocket knife out of your pocket sucks. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so what, so I, uh, when I was, doing trap spring knives and selling them and, and uh, getting a bit of attention. And, and I, saw, I met somebody from the Saskatchewan Knife Makers Guild. Um, so I joined them and every spring they have what they call a hammer in. And that's where anybody who wants to sign up for, I don't know, it's less than a hundred dollars. Um, you literally get to go and be like on the set of Forged and Fire. And there's like a dozen different forges going and instructors going and everybody gets a piece of 5160 leaf spring and found a way learn how to make stuff oh cool so now yeah so now my heavy my heavy bladed hunters i call them either the 5160 line um or i also have a different uh line of knives uh, that i i could tell you about called the frontiersman line anyway those are our leaf spring uh steel okay as in motor okay. vehicle leaf springs. Right. Right. One thing I wanted to go back to, you talked about um, how much your trapping had improved going to the rendezvous and that kind of stuff and how much you'd learned. Absolutely. That's one of the fascinating things about trapping today is how different it is. And we still have a lot of the old trappers that aren't so forthcoming with their, with, with their knowledge in that, but it's getting better. We're, we're learning to oh, share yes, those. It is. That, that information better. And, and the internet is a big, is a big help there too, because there were so many things yes. that were always so secret, but you know, I, oh, I've absolutely. had a couple, I've had a couple of guys say to me, you know, that, you know, should you be telling that? And I, and why not? And they, well, you yes. know, I said, it's not like we're in competition. You're never going to trap on my trap right. line. I'm never going to trap on yours. Right. So why don't we make right. this better for everybody? Absolutely. And, because when I was, when I was younger, Oh, it was brutal. It was brutal. Um, like I said, it, it's, it, I was not real successful taking foxes and coyotes until I, until I tried, kind of applied a little bit of what I saw in, in fur fishing game or magazines because any local guys that knew, they wouldn't tell you. They, well, no, they, they, they even the most basic, they wouldn't tell you to use urine or the, or they wouldn't tell you what, no. you know, that, that, that they're making their, their bait for their mouse hole set out of, out of ground up mice, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, which is yeah, it, a, a, a dead easy thing when you think about it, because that's what that that coyote's out there doing. That's what he's looking down that hole for is for a mouse, so it should smell like a mouse in there. You know, the, those kind mm -hmm. of things, and and yet that would have made the difference between you catching nothing for for a season and, and maybe you know putting spot money in your pocket, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those things, Rich. I I don't really know um, why it is. Maybe maybe it's maybe it just harkens back to the days where. Uh, trapping was so lucrative that um, you didn't want to give away your secrets because you were in competition. I don't know. I, I think there's that. I think I think for a lot of, I mean, in any business or industry or career or whatever, there are very highly competitive people. 
And I think mm-hmm. trappers tend to be more alphas than betas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's always that, you know, I, I, how many links did you catch? Well, you caught 12, I caught 14. You know what I mean? You know, there, right, there, right. there's always that side of it too, right? Mm-hmm. But. Yes. Yes. Well, and, and, and I have, I have a couple, uh, uh, trapper friends, uh, from Regina here. And when I run into, and, and I know they're catching way more coyotes than I am. And so I'll say, Hey, I got this many. And I said, how many do you get? Oh, well, you know, uh, geez, you know, I, you know what? I don't like to talk numbers cause I get, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So it's, but I think, I think is, I think that could be too, you know, modesty and don't brag, don't be uh, ignorant about it. But I think, yeah, it, it just harkens back to, you don't give away your secrets. Yeah. And that doesn't help anything in this day and age, but do you know what, man? No. We we have talked away an hour here. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a website for your knives? Yes. Yes. Trapspringknives.com. All right. And ask and, ask for Big uh, Joe. Uh yes. It's it's uh <laughs> <laughs> Tell my <him> Rich sister. <laughs> yeah, my sister moderates the site and keeps an eye on the site because I'm not really that into sitting on the computer she also has a facebook site um for me she had that first uh which was called forged by fire trap spring knives okay cool yeah yeah so i made it similar to forged in fire but not close enough they haven't phoned you know <laughs> that they're mad at me or anything yet so uh, they will <laughs> when, you, when you get big enough they will <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah, I'm not, this is going okay, Rich. I'm making a little bit of extra money on the side, but I don't think it's going to get that good. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us this evening. Uh, it's uh, well, been, thanks so been much. Quite, quite enjoyable and uh, all the best in the future, man. Okay, great. And you know what? Uh, I love your program. Uh, and always have from the first time I saw it because it's it's true and real and a very professional and positive representa- representation of the industry, but with no phony baloney drama. <laughs> <laughs> we get that a lot, but you know what? Easiest gig in the world. We're just being us. You know, I mean... Okay, that's... And, and, and I don't mean to some people that might sound like bragging that, you know, we're honest, straightforward people and all that, but that's just us. And that's the easiest gig, man. You don't have to do any acting. It is so simple. <laughs> okay. Anyway, awesome. thank you. Great and, talking to you. And we want to thank the, all you folks out there for listening and uh, stay tuned. We'll have another, another uh, podcast up here in a week's time and, and uh, maybe we'll see you all down the line. 